You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Uh, I have a note up here from uh, my friend and fellow elder Adam. Uh, Adam keeps track of things. It kind of, you know, causes me to laugh on occasion. But apparently today is sermon number 100 in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, there you go. All right. Mention that. I guess it's a milestone. So 100 sermons from the book of Matthew. Um, Well, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus warning his disciples and followers as he preached his final sermon near the temple he told them to beware of the scribes and Pharisees then last week we looked at the part of the sermon where Jesus looks directly at the scribes and Pharisees and pronounces seven woes upon them Uh, he certainly did not leave any room for flattery because he pointed out their overwhelming hypocritical conduct. But we didn't finish the chapter, Matthew 23, so today we're going to head back there and wrap things up. And uh, I'm hoping that this will prepare us for the Olivet Discourse, which will begin in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Now, the Olivet Discourse is significant because it is the most extensive uh, instruction that Jesus provides regarding last things. Uh, and for that reason, as you will likely understand, it is filled with all sorts of disagreement and conflict and controversy. Uh, but I'm hoping that today will hopefully bring some clarity as to how we will understand the Olivet Discourse when we walk through it. In any case, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 23. I want to invite you to turn there. And today, we're going to look at verses 32 through 39. Verses 32 through 39. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 32. Jesus says, Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in April of 2021, there was a headline that went quite viral. The headline read as follows, quote, 
Italian hospital employee accused of skipping work for 15 years. The article went on to talk about how a man didn't show up to work for 15 years, but still kept getting a paycheck. <laughs> how many of you would like that, huh? Stay home, sip some coffee, maybe go hit some golf, I don't know, collect a paycheck. Well, obviously, for something like this to happen, the absent employee was not the only person not doing his job, which is why the article mentions that when the situation came to light, it led to the investigation of six different managers. Now, the article doesn't reveal what happened to the managers, but I think we can safely assume what happened to at least some of them, right? Probably a few of them got fired because that is, of course, what happens when you don't do your job. And friends, unfortunately, that is something the religious leaders would end up learning in Matthew 23 as well. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, I don't think, would be accused of not showing up to work. On the contrary, they probably had perfect attendance, right? Because they were always concerned with how others thought of them. But they were guilty of another offense. They were just really bad at their jobs. And perhaps you've met some people like this. You know, they have a desire to work, but they lack direction. They show effort, but they constantly apply it to the wrong things. They're busy. You would think they're getting things done, but they're still not very productive or helpful. That, I think, describes very well what the scribes and the Pharisees were like. And all of these things are revealed in the seven woes that Jesus pronounces, which you can sort of just envision as a kind of termination paper that Jesus gives to the leaders. Jesus is firing them, and he essentially says, and here are my reasons. Now, when you look at the seven woes, you'll notice it's very heavy, is it not? Very heavy indeed. They were failing in so many ways to serve the Lord and faithfully represent him to his people and care for his people. And really, the only surprise is that it took this long for them to get fired, though, right? Because, I mean, you look at Israel's history, and this was something that just happened over and over and over again. But God, in his kindness and in his patience and in his forbearance, tolerated a whole lot. We could think back to Micah's words going back as far as 8th century B.C. Listen to these. Micah said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. This picture would be very familiar to you if you like to hunt, right? Because this is the process of going out, searching for your animal, and getting them to the table. This is what we do with deer, ducks, you name it, right? Israel's leaders were guilty of devouring God's people like an animal they wanted to eat. And not long after Micah, Jeremiah would come in the 7th century similarly declaring... Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. 
A few verses later, Jeremiah continues, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil. There should be shock here, right? Of all places that you would expect there to be devotion to the Lord, love for the Lord. Where would it be? In his very own house. But even there, people were rebelling against him. Ezekiel would also come in the 6th century. And there are many places I could read from Ezekiel, but hear these words from Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel said, On the Lord's behalf, My shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now truly, we could cover so many more verses in the Old Testament where God is rebuking Israel's leaders, but I think these suffice to show again just how long of a history there had been in rebelling against the Lord. And of course, by extension, how long Jerusalem had been rebelling against the Lord since the leaders represented Jerusalem. And I share all of this because here's what you need to know, that chapter 23 is finally the moment where the axe is going to drop. It's finally the moment where Jesus is going to remove Jerusalem's lamp and remove the leaders from their place of honor. It's a time when he's saying, that's it. I've had it with you. Judgment is coming. Oh yeah, and replacements too. That said, here's how I want to move through our text. In order to help understand the significance of the moment, I want to highlight three things. First, Jerusalem's unchanging guilt. Second, Jerusalem's imminent ruin. And then third, Jerusalem's future hope. That would be our outline today. First then, Jerusalem's unchanging guilt. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 23, look at verse 29. And I want you to notice something, particularly the kind of spiritual blindness that marked the leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Last week, I mentioned how this is actually a pretty good example of what we might call generational grandstanding. I've never heard that phrase before, but chat GPT helped me out with it. Grandstanding, of course, being that which happens when a person draws attention to themselves, usually with the goal of causing others to marvel at their own excellence or virtue or abilities. Well, needless to say, the Pharisees were spectacular at this. In fact, it came so naturally to them that it even seeped into their prayers with God. You might recall the depiction of the Pharisee in Luke 18 who goes to the temple to pray and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean... The Pharisee is grandstanding before the Lord. Lord, look at me. Look how good I am. Look how upright and moral and righteous I am. Thank you that I am not like this other person. Tax collector, 
scoundrel. So the Pharisees regularly compared themselves to those around them. But the comparisons didn't stop there. They even extended to the past, right? Because that's what we see going on here with the last woe that Jesus pronounces. He's actually pointing out how the Pharisees would publicly declare before others, well, oh man, our fathers really blew it. Like they really messed up. But oh, we're better than them. We're the enlightened generation. We've learned from their mistakes. We've course corrected, right? If we had lived when they did, we never would have done what they did. <laughs> but there's a certain irony with what they're doing. What they're doing, they are doing in order to disconnect themselves with the past. But Jesus points out they do the opposite. He actually says by decorating the tombs, by building the tombs, they prove the opposite. They actually show that there's a clear connection between their fathers and them. You might wonder, how does this happen? Well, think of it this way. The fathers killed the prophets, the sons bury the prophets. That's why the burial is a witness. There is solidarity then in the act of bloodshed. The father and the sons actually both have blood on their hands. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also gives another reason why they're no better than their fathers. Specifically, notice this, the fact that they will also do the same things their fathers did. Look at verse 32. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Now Jesus is in some measure talking about the past. He essentially says this is what I, the Lord, have done. I have habitually sent you messenger after messenger after messenger. And it is just interesting. You notice the unity between the father and the son, right? He doesn't say the father sent messenger. He says I sent messenger after messenger after messenger. At the same time, he also says this is what I will do and I know how it will end. You will kill, crucify, flog, and persecute the next messengers. Which is, of course, what ended up happening. Now, the Jews didn't crucify Jesus. The Romans did. But the Jews caused the crucifixion, and so therefore were responsible. And Peter points this out, doesn't he? When he is preaching in Jerusalem at Pentecost... He declares very openly in Acts 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Jesus would not be the only one to be crucified, would he? No tradition holds that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Peter's brother Andrew is believed to have been crucified in Greece. Philip is believed to have been crucified in Asia Minor. <laughs> and we all wish that this meant that the other disciples lived on to fulfill a long, happy life, right? But that was not the case at all. Indeed, with the exception of uh, John, which history, tradition believes, uh, died of natural causes, everyone else died a martyr's death. And for all these atrocious acts... Notice what Jesus says in verse 35. 
all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah was on their hands. Worth noting to make sense of this is how the Jews put Genesis at the beginning of their Bible and 2 Chronicles at the end. That's not the case with our Bibles, right? The Old Testament, we begin with Genesis. And then the last book is Malachi. Not so with the Jews' Bible, though. Second Chronicles was at the end. And here's the significance. Jesus said, of course, the blood of righteous Abel. Because Abel happened to be the first person killed in Genesis, right? So he ends up becoming the first martyr of Scripture. Zechariah, or at least the Zechariah that most uh, scholars and commentators uh, believe is in view here, was killed in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 through 22, and he was killed in the house of God between the porch and the altar. So Jesus was saying that from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z, history would continue to be the same. The Jews would forever be known as those who killed God's messengers. And I think there's, of course, even an elevating of what those in Jesus' day did and who he is speaking to, right? Because this is the climax of redemptive history. This is the moment where the Lord, the Messiah, appears and they even kill him. And for this, there is no doubt what God is going to do. God is resolved to establish a new order. No longer would God's kingdom plans advance by means of Israel in Jerusalem, but through something new, something called the church, where Jew and Gentile would worship together. And not in Jerusalem, but they would worship in spirit and in truth. And this is certainly not to say that God would forever be done with Israel and Jerusalem, but it would mean the dawning of a new day, of a new era, one that the Jews certainly could not have foreseen was coming. Now, one thing I want to make clear is that although the church uh, was always part of God's plans, the church was always also the result of Israel's disobedience. In other words, if Israel would have acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah, things would have looked different. I don't know what they would have looked like, honestly. I can't even envision or imagine what they would have looked like, but they would have looked different. But because of Israel's rejection, they are as they are. Things are as they are. But we see that this is the pattern, right? Israel's rejection leads to the gospel advancing to the world through the church. We even saw a picture of this in Matthew's gospel earlier on, right? In Matthew 10, we see that the first people God sends his messengers to are who? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. And upon their rejection, the gospel then goes out beyond them. There is admittedly a mystery to all of this, which I cannot wrap my head around. And I don't want to make it seem in any way that the cross was somehow a backup plan or the church was somehow a backup plan. It wasn't. It was always expected. It was always, it was always anticipated. It was always being moved towards. At the same time, there are human reasons given as to why the church erupts and occurs and why the cross happens, and it all comes back to Israel's hardness of heart. So we've looked at our first point. Now let's look at our second, Jerusalem's 
imminent ruin. Jerusalem's imminent ruin. So Jerusalem will reject the Messiah and his messengers. Jesus says these things will take place. Now I want to focus on what it leads to. Jesus says in verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And the two key questions here are first, what is the meaning of these things? Secondly, what's the meaning of this generation? And here are my answers. (laughs) I think these things has to undoubtedly connect with the woes that were just pronounced on the religious leaders. It's talking about judgment. It's talking about the wrath and the doom of God. These people will not escape hell. And this generation applies to the generation that Jesus was speaking to. And I have several reasons for, I guess, believing this. One big reason I believe this is first of all, it's the most natural sense of the phrase, this generation. It usually applies to those that are, you know, about 40, you know, within 40 years of something. But uh, again, just because of the audience Jesus is speaking to, he is saying you, he is speaking to these leaders. But history also gives us a very big reason for believing it to be that generation. History tells us in 70 AD, 40 years later, something unbelievable would happen in Jerusalem. The Romans would ransack the city, killing countless people and burning it to the ground. And they would completely destroy the temple too. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus describes his firsthand witness of this event like this. Quote, That building, he's speaking of the temple, however, God long ago had sentenced to the flames, but now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived, the tenth of the month of Laos, the very day on which previously it had been burned by the king of Babylon. One of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted it up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window, When the flame arose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews, now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be burned to the ground, except only the highest towers and that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the west. That wall happens to be still very famous to this day. It is known as the what? The West Wall. This event was so enormous that it is believed that 1,100,000 Jews were killed. 1,100,000 Jews. Now, at this point, let me just say that there are several different ways that you can read the Olivet Discourse. For instance, there are those who think that everything Jesus is talking about essentially ends up happening in 70 AD. So they believe in pretty much a total past fulfillment. These people are called preterists. Not preterists. Preterists. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T-S. And they don't make up a large swath of evangelical um, Scholarship, probably less than 1%, I don't know. Um, Then there are those who emphasize a future fulfillment, and then there are those who see a combination of both. And my belief is that we should see a combination of both. 
but I'll explain more about that as we move through the Olivet Discourse starting next week. In any case, for today, something worth noting is that God's judgment upon Jerusalem was not nearly, merely connected to its destruction, but perhaps even most significantly, that this would be the moment that there would be no more hope of God's presence in Jerusalem because Jerusalem's house would become desolate. Now, there's a discussion about what your house refers to. Uh, some say it refers to the temple. Others say it refers to Jerusalem as a whole and everything in it. And certainly the two cannot be uh, completely separated from each other, but I do think that the temple is mainly in view. And let me give you just a couple reasons for this. First, the sermon, again, that Jesus is giving. This is the last sermon that he is going to give at the temple. I mean, it's pretty tough to avoid that very direct object lesson, right? Second, the temple, as we know, was frequently referred to as a house. It was understood to be God's house, the place where God's presence was manifested. Third, the centrality of the temple and really its prominence within the life of Jerusalem cannot be overstated. It is reiterated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So you have the original temple that is built under the reign of Solomon. Eventually that temple is destroyed, right? The Babylonians will come in, completely wipe out the temple. Then there's a temple rebuilt, though the glory of that second temple was nothing like the first, even to the extent that people mourned when they saw it. And then you have eventually the temple of Jesus' day, which was perhaps the most extravagant temple that had ever been built, and it was funded by Herod. So it was called Herod's Temple. Now the presence of God had not resided in Jerusalem for a long, long time, though there had been a temple there. But one thing is sure, based on what Jesus is saying, God would not be returning anytime soon. And the hope of his presence there would seem to be long gone. And you have to think of how sad of a situation this is, right? Because yes, things could have been different. Israel's Savior had come. Jerusalem's king was there, standing right in front of them at the temple. And yet, he becomes rejected, especially by those who should have expected them, or expected him. And you just think of this, right? Because the downfall of Jerusalem, it, it, it had nothing to do with Jerusalem's secular underclass. It wasn't the result of tax collectors lowlifes, thugs, prostitutes, and thieves, but no, the respected leaders of Israel. With that in mind, just reflect on the verse 38 for a moment. See your house is left to you desolate. Uh, this word desolate can also be translated as wilderness. And I point that out because some people find a certain connection uh, to the book of Numbers. You might recall that there is a startling story in the book of Numbers God sends out 12 spies to examine the promised land. They come back. 10 spies offer a negative report. Two give a positive report, Joshua and Caleb. But what's the outcome? As a result of the report of the 10, an entire generation of people is plunged into judgment. That's an interesting connection to make. I don't know how much we should make of it, but it is a good picture of what's happening, isn't it? A few of the leaders, right? Israel's leaders plunge 
everybody else into judgment. And you just hear the sadness of all this and the lamentation that Jesus gives in verse 37. Listen to Jesus. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's interesting. Um, Sometimes you would like scripture to provide you with the proper tone of what you're reading because whatever tone you carry kind of like informs how you're going to think about a particular text, right? So you could read this with the tone in mind, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Or you could read it with a different tone. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I believe with all my heart that the tone we ought to read this with is really Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Certainly there would have been righteous anger. God has righteous anger every single day. But I also think his anger is mixed with righteous sorrow, especially when it comes to his people, especially when it comes to Israel. God speaks with such amazingly tender language in the Old Testament when it comes to his relationship with Israel. He had a perfect love, a tender love, and an overwhelmingly forbearing and patient love. Let me give you some examples of this. We could think of Jeremiah 31, verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Deuteronomy 7, very well-known passage since it happens just so early on in the book of Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Is that not tender language? Isaiah 54, verse 10, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Earlier this morning, even in our scripture reading, we read from the book of Hosea, right? You won't find any more astonishing love than you see in Hosea. Hosea becomes a living picture that he has a faithless bride, but he's going to take his bride back. That's a picture of Israel. Israel will be the faithless bride, but the Lord will take her back. He will have great compassion on her. And with that kind of love, I mean, here God is. He's saying, just just come here, my little chicks, right? Come, come under my wings. Find protection under my wings and, and I'll care for you. That's what the message of Jesus was. 
It was the invitation to come and take shelter under the care of the Lord. But notice what Jesus says was in the hearts of those around him. He said, but you were unwilling. You were unwilling. Unwilling is a fascinating word because it obviously speaks to Israel's continued obstinance. There can be no confusion here. Israel failed to be saved, not because of God's unwillingness, but because of their unwillingness. Not because of a lack of generosity on, on God's part, but a lack of desire by Israel to turn. And friends, this is still true to this day. It's still true to this day for everyone especially those who hear the gospel. In the gospel, God is constantly bidding you to come and to take refuge under the shelter of his wings. And he's provided a means for you to be able to do that. He has sent his one and only son to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved. And this sacrifice by Jesus was vindicated and it was accepted by God we know because three days later what happens he comes back from the dead and because of that father friends we have hope today there is hope of forgiveness there's hope of forgiveness for you to turn to Jesus to repent from your sin scripture is so clear that God is righteous and holy and supremely powerful, but it is also clear that God does not delight in the death of the wicked ever. Listen to Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You just, you can hear it. Don't go there. You don't have to go there. Just turn and live. And again, I say to you that the message is the same. God is looking at you today and he's saying, don't go there. Why die? Turn to Jesus and live. Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, may no person ever say that God is some bully in the heavens who only wants to dominate, subdue, and control. That is never the picture of God in the Bible. He offers eternal joy he offers abundant life. He offers eternal salvation to anyone who will humble their hearts before him. Yes, God will bring judgment upon those who do not turn from sin. But he doesn't do that without demonstrating overwhelming amounts of patience. And you just have to marvel at it, right? I mean... Just think of it. I mean, how many people would you allow to stay in your home, even just on your average week, right? If every day when you woke up, they ignored you, they, maybe even worse, they cursed you to your face, <laughs> they ate up all your food but never helped restock the pantry, they left the sheets dirty, 
never picked up their clothes, never once said thank you. But that's what God puts up with every single day. A bunch of bossy, demanding, sinful people. Which is why the Bible says he is a God who feels indignation every day. Really, when you think of it, the only question is, why does God not consume us right now? Why does he allow us to live even one minute? Friends, it's because he's merciful. More merciful than we can comprehend. And so let me be clear about this, friends. If one day you go to hell, it will not be for a lack of concern on God's part, nor a lack of his initiative to save you. It will be that you rejected his one and only son, Jesus Christ, because you were unwilling to love him more than sin. Friends, don't do that. You don't have to. You don't have to go that direction. That does not have to be your road. Turn to Jesus because in him are all the treasures of God. This brings me to my third and final point, third, Jerusalem's future joy. Look at verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, if you've been with us in our study of Matthew, you know that this is not the first time that we have heard this uh, sentence uttered, right? I mean, we, we heard that this was the very thing that the people were declaring as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on the infamous Palm Sunday. But those words on Palm Sunday, there were some that would have meant those words, but there were many who didn't mean those words. There were many that scoffed at what was happening. They looked at those declaring those words and looked with mockery, looked with ridicule. It upset them, certainly upset the religious leaders. But as we see here, there is coming a day when these words will be uttered again. And in fact, it's so certain to happen that Jesus is emphatic in what he says. In the Greek, there's actually a double negative that's being used here. So it's not simply someday these words are going to be uttered, but you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will absolutely, positively not see me until these words are uttered, is what Jesus is saying. And because of this, friends, this is what we know, that one day Jesus will bring Israel back into his fold. Even, even at this moment, even when God could say, that's it, I've had it, I'm done with you, does he? No, he still talks about a future hope for Israel. Right now, we are in a time where the fullness of the Gentiles is being brought in. Paul talks about that in Romans 9 through 11. But one day, there will be a wide-sweeping revival among the Jews, a day when they will recognize Jesus as their Savior. And why am I so sure of it? Not merely on the basis of Psalm 118, not merely on the basis of what Jesus says here, 
Not merely even on the basis of Romans 9 through 11, but we can also think of Zechariah 12 verse 10. Listen to this. This is so incredible. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There it is. Can you imagine that this is going to be a day that happens? For the Jews will return to Jesus and for all that they have done to reject him, finally they're going to come to their senses and they're going to realize who their Messiah really is. I thought about this text this week and I thought, what's our take home? What are we to learn from this as God's people, the church today? And I would say, at a minimum, we, we better be learning two things. First, we better be learning about the immeasurable grace of God. Friends, does it cause you to worship throughout your week when you just think about how good and kind and gracious God is? It is a thought that we never should move beyond. It ought to be the air that we breathe. God is overwhelmingly gracious, even in the midst of our sorrows, even in the midst of our challenges, even when things don't go how we want them to go and plans don't work out how we anticipated. God is overwhelmingly gracious and good. In light of that, friends, repent and keep repenting. Romans tells us that it is God's kindness that should lead us to repentance. And it really should. Not a single one of us deserves anything good from the Lord's hand, and yet he sends rain on the just and the unjust. This week, most of us are going to wake up. We're going we're to hug and kiss our kids if we've got them. We're going to eat food that's in our refrigerators. We're going to interact with friendships who love the Lord and encourage us in a variety of ways. God is overwhelmingly gracious to us. But my second application would also be this. Second, pray for Israel. Pray that the gospel would go out. Pray that we as a church would do our part within the redemptive plan of God to introduce everyone we can to the saving love of Jesus Christ. I don't know how God is going to use Harvest Plains Church right here in Mapleton as part of this grand global redemptive plan, but I know this, he will. And he desires to use the church to bring in people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And friends, I hope you are excited about that mission because it is the mission, it is the very reason why Jesus came, not just to save you, to save everyone else around you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.